Hello, and welcome to Big Fish in the Talent Pool with your host, Aaron Peterson, partner and global talent acquisition consultant with People Results. In each episode, Aaron interviews a corporate head of talent acquisition to shine a light on how they got there, what keeps them up at night, and their views on all the hot topics in TA today. There's nothing Erin is afraid to ask because she's been there. Now here's your host, Erin Peterson. Big Fish listeners, do you know offhand what makes you happy? I mean, really, what makes you happy? Is it standing at that crossroads with the hiring manager and a candidate and changing both of their lives? Or is it something beyond what you do today as a recruiter or as a recruiting leader? So my guest this episode has crossed over that entire spectrum in terms of being a recruiting operations leader, being a recruiting leader, then leading recruiting on a global basis for a major corporation, and now has stepped into a zone where he is helping other people figure out what makes them really happy. And there's a correlation there. So keep listening if you want to know more about what Tim Streeter has to say. Tim Streeter is the former head of talent acquisition at Whirlpool. He is Michigan-based. He has a global view and a really interesting story to tell about how he landed on um, his own future vision for uh, starting a foundation and then helping other people follow a very specific framework that he details in a book that he recently wrote called The Contentment Commitment. More to come. But in the meantime, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you to my sponsors. That includes the Association of Talent Acquisition Professionals. More information from this great professional association at atapglobal.org and from RPOA, the RPO Association, where you can learn all that you need to know about recruitment process outsourcing. So without further ado, here comes Tim Streeter. Enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. I have Tim Streeter with me today. Tim has a really interesting background, having spent 24, almost 25 years with Accenture, and then moving over to Whirlpool, where he led recruiting globally, and has recently retired and has a whole lot of other things he is into, and we're going to hear about all that. But before I go on, Tim Streeter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure, and I appreciate being invited. You bet. I am really glad to have you. So a couple of career highlights, uh, you know, the, not many people can say that they have led an organization with 2,500 recruiters across 16 geographies to deliver 100,000 plus hires a year. I mean, 100,000 is like a, that's a good number to have for employees, uh, much less have that number of hires annually. So we need to talk about scale because uh, that is one significant number. So we'll definitely talk about that. And then you pivoted to what is a smaller organization, Whirlpool Global. But most people would consider 200 recruiters globally delivering 35,000 hires a year to be a really big job. So amazing that that was your step down in terms of volume, probably not your step down in terms of challenge. And I would just, I'd love to hear, Tim, talk a little bit about that. What was it like delivering at scale? And then we're going to go backwards. And I want to start at the beginning of your career and, and let my listeners hear how you got to that point. Sure. Uh, so the scale, it's funny you mentioned that. My parents are very impressed when I share the numbers. So they have, you know, <laughs> they 
can share parties. But no, the, the numbers sound scary, but as you would expect, there's teams of great people everywhere. And so in terms of the delivery, there was 16 geographic units or regions. Um, and I worked closely with the recruiting lead of each region. And so those teams varied in size from as small as 30 people to as large as 500 people. But really my job was to maintain a pulse of what was going well in terms of our key success measures. Um, obviously delivery being one of them, but not the only one. So essentially where teams were running well and hitting or exceeding their targets, my job was to learn from them and stay out of their way. And in the other areas where we were struggling, uh, either from a delivery perspective or with other key success measures, to jump in and, and help. So it definitely sounds like a lot. It was a lot. It's actually one of the reasons uh, I ended up leaving Accenture is um, it occurred to me that when your primary product is people, companies have to always be growing revenue and profitability <laughs> to, to be a company that's remaining in business. Um, unless there's some diversification or uh, acquisition of assets, we would just you know, have to hire 150,000 and 200,000 and 250,000. And so that prospect was actually something I felt like I could manage the volume I had quite well um, with the, the team leads in place that we had. But the thought of doubling that in a few years was enough to make me look for something, uh, a smaller scale where I could actually really get to know all or most of the recruiters and really be closer to some of the challenges than I was able to be at that scale. Okay. Well, that is, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, in, insatiable is the word that comes to mind. You know, when, when I tell people about my time with Accenture, it was sort of the early days of growth every year, doubling and doubling and more doubling, which is what you're referring to. And it's an insatiable need for talent, uh, both replacing and then growth based and then acquisition. So the, there's the, the other component of it, I think too, which has been the source of their growth in, in later times. So I get that. So you thought, okay, I'm going to take all this good volume-based um, experience and um, see if it will port over to a different environment. So there's a really, uh, I think, well-known concept that typically happens for some leaders, and that is you if you leave a place you've been for a couple of decades and then go to the next place, you get a little bit of a culture shock because the way you've learned things work is, of course, you know, sort of the place that you've planted your feet for a while. How did that go for you going to an organization that was so different from, from Accenture? Yeah, it was uh, probably helps to share a bit about what I was looking for in a change um, and some of the conversations I had, uh, which helped prepare me for that. Certainly there was a big culture difference, um, but I wouldn't call it a culture shock because I had a pretty good sense it was coming. What I was looking for in terms of a change, uh, originally my goal was to make it into the, the very top role at Accenture, have that for a few years and use that as a launching pad to take the top role somewhere else. But for a variety of reasons, it became clear that that number two role was kind of as far as I was going to go um, with the, the leadership in place. And so I really wanted to have the top role and all the good things and all the bad things that come with that. Um, you know, and get, get the full experience, if you will. And so that, that was, number one, what I was looking for. But in terms of uh, attributes of a company, I was pretty wide open. So I wanted to have some aspects where I was confident I could lift and drop some things from Accenture and have some success right away. But I was also looking for something new to learn. Um, so it wasn't just the same job somewhere else or, you know, another consulting company. So the whole hourly hiring was a completely new dimension for me and something that I thought would make that interesting and challenging, which it definitely did, um, as well as the contractor hiring component of that role. So that was definitely part of the attraction. In addition, I talked to several people who had been at Accenture for 15, 20 years as well, 
and, and kind of weren't really sure if they should leave. And people who are one, two, three years out, and they all said the same thing, which was life is good on the other side. So it gave me a lot of confidence that, yes, it's going to be different, but it's going to be positive and it's going to tick the boxes for what I'm looking for. If you get to your point in terms of culture, I would summarize it really simply, which in the world of Accenture, I would say speed is valued over consensus. And in the world of Whirlpool, I would say consensus is valued over speed. Okay. Definitely an adjustment for someone who spent a long time at Accenture. No doubt. Wow, that is a bit of wisdom, I have to say. I, I have seen that myself. So how did you adjust? You had to slow down? You had to consider more stakeholders? What what, what changed? Uh, one of the other things I was really focused on in terms of making a change was to ensure I was well aligned with the CHRO. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be in a place where TA was valued, at least in the moment, um, you know, as something that was needed and critical to the growth of the business. So in that case, you know, if Accenture was about uh, scaling, Whirlpool was about transformation. And so the role had actually been vacant for nearly a year. So you can imagine all the things that happen when no one is driving a strategy or aligning the business to common approaches. Yeah. Everyone creates their own approach. And so... Um, So I knew I was getting into that, um, but it was a great opportunity for me to come in and really get to know each of the key business leaders, being able to work with executive committee members, understanding what worked well and what were the issues from each of their perspectives and be able to, to set the strategy. I felt like that was something where they hadn't really had a TA expert. They had lots of smart people who rotated through lots of HR roles, Mm -hmm. no one who had spent many, many years in TA. And so a key difference from a positive perspective from Accenture is all the region recruiting leads at Accenture were so strong that when I first started in the role where I worked with them, the response was often, thanks for your help, global person, but we got it. We know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And a Whirlpool is a bit of the op- opposite, which was really, oh, thank goodness, someone who's done recruiting for more than two years, please help us and tell us what we should do. So, so that was a nice uh, change to walk into and definitely yeah. made me feel valued and, and uh, respected from the start. Yeah, but be careful what you ask for, right? So um, they <laughs> appreciated that you were there, but then you had that big bucket of work to do. How did you sort through the priorities? From my perspective, really the most fun part is that first 90 days. You know, for some people, maybe it's 60 days or 120 days, but whatever the period of time is that you really assess the opportunities So you gather all the inputs. And from my perspective, it's important to get both qualitative and quantitative. In the case of Whirlpool, there was very little quantitative. So I really had to partner and go deep with finance and with the two-person analytics organization (laughs) to see what history existed. One of the things I learned right away is that Whirlpool is very global on paper and on a website, but in reality functioned as completely separate regions. And so to gather any kind of holistic information required gathering information from multiple systems and tools. So we've all been through something like that, I think. So it wasn't unique in that perspective. It was a bit time consuming to build some history, if you will, in key metrics, rather than being able to just review and analyze a history of, of results. And then from a qualitative perspective, it was really talking to the business leads, the HR leads, and the recruiting leads in each of the key regions. And just getting their stories. So I would ask them, you know, how would you describe the success of recruiting? You know, what do you think is going well? What do you think needs to be improved? And so gathering all those pieces, taking the different perspectives, 
and building a strategy from that to me is really the most fun part. Once you have the strategy and the key leaders are aligned to it, you know, executing it becomes less fun in my opinion, simply because you're competing against other priorities and you can never do it as quickly as you want to. And there's always, you know, road bumps or budget challenges or, you know, people moving in and out. All right. Well, we're going to come back to that, but it's so interesting when you're talking about the quantitative versus the qualitative. It makes sense to me because you were an economics and math major. Am I right? At I was. At Kalamazoo University. So how was, how, how did you move from that kind of major, which in many cases will lead to some sort of, uh, let's call it business career, or even with, you know, the math focus, maybe an actuarial career, I mean, heavily statistical or um, quantitative is what I would expect from that. What was it about, I I would imagine it was Anderson when you first joined, right? So that was back in the 90s, early 90s. So when when you joined Anderson with that major, what was it that attracted you and and what what did you do at the very beginning? Um, And anyone who's worked with me for any amount of time will tell you that metrics and analytics are, (laughs) won't take long to come out in a conversation (laughs) regardless of the role that I'm in. Yeah. Um, but the attraction to Accenture Anderson Consulting at the time for me, uh, it was one of the few jobs where I felt you didn't have to know exactly what you wanted to do and mm-hmm. be a deep expert in it or pretend you were a deep expert in it to get the job. It was something we had the opportunity to sample different locations, different industries, different technologies, and really kind of figure out as you're getting paid, um, but having real world experience where you want to take it from there. And so it was absolutely my expectation that I would enter. I entered into the consulting organization, um, into the the process competency. So I wasn't a technical person. I didn't have a lot of computer programming experience. Um, But it was my expectation I would have that job for two or three years, have a good credential, and then either go to work for one of the clients where I had worked or move on to something else. But uh, always I was wary of the work-life balance and there was clear expectations set. you know, it's work hard, play hard. You're going to work 60, 70 hours a week, you know, depending on the project and the phase of the project. So that was always my expectation. It's not how it worked out, but that was the initial attraction and the initial expectation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you jumped into the consulting work, learned a bit, and then uh, and then transitioned to an internal role. Am I right? More the, the What was at the time not really called the global recruiting team, but it was sort of an operational team that helped global recruiting. I mean, how did that happen you know, versus all the other internal options that, that you could have had? So I think like many people in recruiting, I sort of stumbled into it, um, <laughs> but, uh, but in a good way. So I had uh, I was assigned to a project in Atlanta, which was uh, before, during, and after the Olympics in '96. Uh-huh. Sure, fantastic yeah. time to be there. And the project was building CD-ROMs for the America's Recruiting Organization. Okay, so, so my millennial listeners are going to have to look that up. Yeah, exactly, it's like <laughs> a, a compact disc. It's even worse than that. So, this uh, is ancient history. Good yeah. for you. Okay, so, got it. Yeah, so I mean, what I would say is. That was a super fun project from my perspective because it was different than the programming I'd done previously. It was video editing and audio editing and green screens and storyboarding and scripts. So it's pretty, pretty interesting and cool, I thought. And what that morphed into was this whole internet thing. So if you really want to date myself, mm-hmm. that's when the internet was, it was a question of, is this going to be a business tool? Is this just a novelty? Are companies actually going to use this thing? Will anybody so even look at this thing called a website? Exactly. Right. Um, Career site, early career sites. Nobody even knew what they were doing. Right. So that's what it morphed into for me was Mm -hmm. uh, was building the first website for Accenture. So before Accenture had any client facing information, it was just a career site. Yeah. And so my job was to 
to travel to all the regions and build out the careers pages for all the different regions. And so that's where I got to meet all the recruiting leads and the teams and really build some good relationships and see what was similar and different across all the different locations. Very cool. And that was, I think, with uh, Sandy Stangaby. Um, am I right? Was she well, on that she team as well? Boss. She yeah. was my supervisor. She was yeah. leading that team. Yeah. Okay. Well, super cool. So, so you sort of uh, learned what you didn't know already about programmatic recruiting and then really the branding and marketing side of it, like how to talk about it in a way that people would be attracted, right? Mm-hmm. Before terms like candidate attraction, candidate engagement, who knew, right? Basically, you were out there trying to, to put together the right content so that people would uh, learn about Accenture. Wow. Exactly. Um, so, so it was a super fun time in my life. It was before I had kids. So I wanted to travel internationally. I would stay yeah. weekends and go to soccer matches and, you know, mm-hmm. go out with team members. So it was a, a very fun period in my life. I was thankful for, uh, for that opportunity. So you went through a variety of uh, roles at Accenture, sort of in the, um, I would call it foundational roles, preparing the rest of the talent acquisition organization to do what they do and deliver. When was your first delivery role where you had accountability for hires? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure that I would say I had accountability for delivery until maybe my last six or seven years. Uh-huh. So it was really um, kind of morphing out of the, the internet and career site development um, was when Accenture was just pivoting to become a public company. And yeah. so that was the first time a global recruiting team was being established. And so I actually proposed a role. I said, it seems to me if we're going to have a global team that's supposed to be helping the regions uh, optimize their delivery and performance, we probably need to know what they do well and what they do poorly and where we should focus our time and help inform the strategy and approach. Mm-hmm. So I actually proposed a role that didn't exist um, to, to David Reed at the time and, and Bill Ziegler after him. Um, said, I think you need a person to go around and do this. And so that was like my dream role. So it was similar to what I did with the career sites, except instead of going and programming things, I would go to each location and I would meet with the lead and other key team leads. And they would essentially share with me everything that they were doing and what was going well and what was going poorly. And I would draft a series of questions to make sure I had you know, a, an apples to apples comparison across regions. But it really made me one of the most valuable people at Accenture from a recruiting perspective, because I was really had a, a depth of detail and information and what was unique and what was similar across the regions. And I would come back every quarter and essentially make a presentation to the global recruiting team and to the lead and say, here's what I learned. And this is these are actions that I recommend we take coming out of those discussions. Yeah. So that was maybe more recruiting strategy. It didn't really pivot into delivery until 2008 in the recession when I think the HR COO at the time was threatening to give the whole thing to RPO, mm-hmm. say, why do we need you guys at all? Can I get a more efficient delivery? Of course, in that moment, it's all about cost efficiency because you're yeah. not growing, you're contracting. Given that I had had some recent history working closely with finance um, and given my metrics and analytics focus, um, our lead at the time, John Campanino, asked me to, to take the lead role in essentially responding to that and justifying our existence from an operational perspective. And so that's when I really took ownership of the budgets across the regions and managed it globally yeah. rather than each region uh, managing it individually. Mm-hmm. But even then, I would say it was probably more budget and headcount was the accountability than delivery. The delivery really remained with the teams. And I only jumped in if there was severe under delivery in one area. And it was really to help solve the problem as mm-hmm. opposed to owning owning it myself. Which gave you familiarity with 
TA technology, with process best practices, I would imagine, and eventually candidate experience? All of those things. So from Mm -hmm. a metrics perspective, the things that that we would look at for each region uh, were really about delivery. So kind of delivery versus forecast and speed of delivery by different profile types, Um, quality, value, candidate experience, and diversity Mm -hmm. and were really the, the categories. Yeah. And I love uh, the beginning of that story in that you were traveling around collecting best practices and, you know, sort of helping people fix things. Uh, That's partly personal for me because uh, in uh, 98 through 2001, I was the delivery leader for Germany, Austria, Switzerland. You remember this when I was actually an expat working um, in in that location. And I would have one or two people who'd call me occasionally from, you know, HQ, whatever that was, there wasn't really a human, uh, an HQ at Accenture, but you know, somebody on the global team and they'd say, you know what you should do, you should do this thing. And it was typically something that someone in the U S had, had come up with. And I always appreciated the advice, but I, I always, uh, sort of pushed back a little bit and said, well, how do you know we're not doing this already? Nobody ever asked me. So, um, the role that you were playing is a really pivotal one because not all the best ideas come from the U S am I right? Uh, I <laughs> emphasize that enough. Um, not all the best ideas come from top down either, right? The best That's ideas right. are usually happening on the ground and they're usually happening from trial and error. And the yeah. closer you are to that, the faster you learn it and the more, the faster you share it the better the results typically. That's good. Yeah, that's perfect. Because I, I think the value then of that role becomes one of sort of best practices gathering and bringing it back to whatever the centralized, you know, component of the organization is so that you can then uh, decide, okay, gee, this thing is a real game changer. We need to have, uh, give everybody the opportunity to do it. So. It's, it's really two ways. So I felt like every time, you know, a role would change and I had to build a new relationship and build yeah. trust with someone, there's always that moment where, you know, you get something and you give something, right? So Mm -hmm. you you actually share something that they didn't already know, that they hadn't already tried, that actually helped a lot. And all of a sudden you have value um, from their perspective. And similarly, the first time you share something they're doing that they didn't know was unique and more effective than what any other region is. And they get a great sense of pride that they're contributing to the whole and, and that they're heard and valued as well. So it doesn't always happen immediately, but you always find that sooner rather than later. And when you do, that's, that's when you kind of have that relationship and that's when they share everything and that's when, yeah. that's when good results flow. You know what else? I'm I'm going to make a leap here just in terms of the trust factor because the way that your personality shows itself I think is one of data and specifics and details and that has a tendency to build a lot of trust. You don't really come at your conversations with a sort of a sales mentality of I've got a thing and I've got to convince you of it. You're, you're more about the data. Did you find that that was an advantage in that role? I, I, I'm making that up, but I'll bet you that was a factor that you you were, you know, people trusted you. So they sort of were open to what you had to share. Is that yeah, right? I mean, I'd share a couple of things in relation to trust. I mean, one, definitely data and metrics helps you partner on solving a problem together. So rather than, than me coming in and saying, I think there's a problem and you saying, I don't think there's a problem and we're debating if there's even a problem, mm-hmm. that's very antagonistic and never a foundation for a good relationship. But if we come in and I can share with you, I'm looking across 16 regions and the average productivity per recruiter for this profile is X and yours is 20% off of that. And, and the ones, you know, the, the next worst is only 5% off of that. We can agree. Probably that's not good. And there's probably an opportunity there. 
And I don't have the answer and you don't have the answer, but probably if we look at what the other regions are doing and we look at what you've already tried and we solve that together, mm-hmm. we can have a joint win that benefits both of us. Yeah. So I think it helps from that perspective. And more broadly, I would just say, you know, we always had, once I took ownership of the budgets, that could be a tricky one, right? We've all worked with people who said, and, and lots of people at Accenture like this, who've said, you know, we need to, you need to come in 5% less, hire the same amount of people, 5% less your problem, do it. That was the exciting part. Like that was my excuse once a year to go to each region is to say, well, we know we got to cut 5%. I'm not sure how we're going to do it. I assume you're not sure how we're going to do it, but let's sit down together for a couple of days and let's look at all the possibilities of how we could possibly do it. And let's see how close we can come. And sometimes we would surpass it by a lot and feel pretty confident about it. Sometimes we couldn't get there and we would reset expectations that is not going to happen for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And across the whole, I would win some and lose some. So if we had an overall goal, I would know some regions would beat it and some wouldn't quite get there, but mm-hmm. it was managing to the target across the whole. So okay. that was something that I think helped as well. So it becomes a shared goal as opposed to a we, they in exactly. that situation. Okay. Very interesting. If you're a regular listener, you know that I often ask my guests about what they're loving in TA technology these days. And I'm back here with Josh Zwain of Paradox, the makers of Olivia, the conversational AI solution. On one of my last podcasts, the head of TA I was talking to said she still needs convincing when it comes to conversational AI being a a, a viable tool for her team. What do you say to TA leaders who are still a little skeptical? Probably the question you get is, does it remove the human element? And I'd actually like push back on that a little bit and say... Um, it's not very human right now when when candidates get ghosted or, you know, they don't get questions answered or they fall into some black hole. So, you know, really, we try to set out to solve the problem of, you know, where does it make sense to apply technology to make the experience better? And where should humans still be involved? And how do we how do we make those humans more effective at their jobs? We don't view this as a replacement for recruiters. Um, we view it as a as a tool to make these recruiters more effective at their jobs and, you know, frankly, to get them out from behind the computer screen and talking to people again. How else can my listeners connect with Paradox? Sure. So we built an actual uh, demo experience. If anybody wants to test it out, they can text Big Fish to 25,000 on their on their cell phone. It's not a full Olivia experience. I think it's an intro and it's a gateway and it's, it's the start of a conversation. All right. And I appreciate the Big Fish connection. Great to talk to you as always. And we'll be in touch. The Whirlpool story is an interesting one because there was a decision at some point to RPO. Am I right about that? There was. So when I first joined, um, the headline in the interviews was, we have an RPO and it's broken and we need somebody to come in and fix it. That was more or less the headline, which is interesting because the RPO actually existed in one of four regions and it sort of existed in a second region, but not in the same way. But the the narrative was we've got an RPO problem, even though it wasn't everywhere. Okay. The reality was it was supporting professional or experienced hiring in one region and it was supporting university hiring in another region and nothing in the other two. Uh, So I was up front in the beginning. I said, I, you know, I come from Accenture, so we're consultants and we don't think anyone can do it better than we can. So we haven't outsourced (laughs) recruiting (laughs) to anyone, you know, save, save some uh, examples for Accenture HR services, of course. But I was up front that, you know, I'm not coming in as an RPO expert where I've done this for 10 years with 10 different vendors and, you know, I've seen all the problems. I said, however, I'm confident that we can put a framework in place that helps us understand what's good you know, what's same, better and worse in terms of their delivery and make an informed decision. And that would be my approach. So they were happy with that. So what I did uh, coming into the role 
was first put a common set of success measures or TA metrics across all four regions, um, differentiated by executive versus experience versus entry level versus hourly, just to understand where we've been in each region, kind of how much it's moving and in what direction, but also to inform so we know what our baseline is, we can see how each of the different delivery vehicles are are performing. So in looking at the current vendor in that situation, I had to agree. It was a vendor that had been there for seven years and they were pretty complacent and it was pretty poor. And there were other factors. So senior managers was a career level that was included in the scope that wouldn't typically be part of the value proposition of an RPO. Um, So it was easy to kind of scrape that piece out. Mm -hmm. But we went through a process where we did an RFP. You know, we looked at kind of the top 10. We invited the four or five we liked the best. We got it down to a few finalists and brought them on site. At that point, my hypothesis would have been, we'll bring in one RPO for one region and another one for the other region. We'll give them the same scope, which is professional hiring for both. And we'll look at their performance across the success measures in relation to the other two regions where we have internal teams delivering professional hires and make an informed decision. And we'll either give all of it to the RPO or bring all of it in-house. I would have said, We'll most likely be bringing all of it in-house. That was my expectation. However, um, after putting two different providers in place in the two different regions and letting it run for about 18 months, actually learned otherwise. And what we learned was one of them is far better than the other, leveraging technology much more heavily, which enabled them to have a much higher productivity and lower people cost and, and lower cost, but faster delivery, better experience, pretty much everything wow. was better with one versus the other. But what we found is they were more cost effective than internal teams in our high labor cost countries. We couldn't really find a good way to do it in the lower labor cost markets um, that didn't add a lot of cost to have similar results. And so in the end, we actually went to one RPO rather than two. Um, We used them in the two higher labor cost regions and we kept the internal teams in the other two. So you ran it like an experiment, like a scientific experiment is what it sounds like. That's absolutely what it was. Um, wow. so with the a hypothesis make- and the hypothesis was disproven. <laughs> the hypothesis was flat wow. out wrong, um, <laughs> but <laughs> such, is the, such is the case sometimes. Well, when you rely on data and take an objective viewpoint, that's what can happen, right? Exactly. I mean, so, uh, that's remarkable. I mean, the good thing is everyone, not just me, everyone involved was confident in what we were doing and why we were doing it. And so it was a very, there was no selling of it. It was just mm-hmm. the inclusion and the next step of that. Okay. Should I picture the scorecard being a succinct, nice, tight one pager or voluminous data collection with, you know, multi-tab spreadsheet? <laughs> a tight one pager is where okay. it starts. That's, uh, that's easier to absorb, but always the ability to drill down. So if something's red, you can always drill down a few layers, yeah. find out why it's, why it's red. And that's also where the qualitative comes in, as you would know. Sometimes it's red, but it's red for real reasons, or sometimes it's red you know, for artificial reasons. So that's where you yeah. need to understand to have a conversation first before you sound the alarms and tell everyone there's a problem because that's right. it's in the red. And think of it in the context of the culture as well, because when you're doing global, you have to think about, it's not one world. Things are very different in Asia than they are in Europe, than they are in Africa, than they are in US. Um, So, wow, really interesting outcome. And so talk about technology behind that. So if you were running this experiment and trying to have a a level playing field, was everybody using the same technology to deliver? You you said the the sort of front runner was was leveraging technology more successfully, Yeah, so there were definitely differences um, in the technologies. And one of the challenges in coordinating across the regions is, of course, 
everyone wants to experiment with technology, right? So everyone wants to have the AI that's auto-matching candidates to profiles. They want to have the AI that's doing the natural language processing outreach to candidates and setting them up on the calendar automatically. You know, they want to have the automated behavioral assessment. So all of these things are part of the the technology architecture um, for TA and, and kind of the recruiting roadmap or technology roadmap for recruiting. So the challenge is to not have everyone pick their own and run <laughs> at their own pace and, and compete against each other. So that was part of the value proposition of the RPO is because they're supporting multiple clients, they're able to sample 10 different technologies and see which one works best, um, faster than we can. And I don't have to compete with other HR technology initiatives to get my technology in line and wait two years for it to be implemented to try something, I can try it in two months. Yeah. So, so there's a big value proposition there in terms of learning what works. And then you can always take those same technologies once you know you've got something that's working really well and use those in the non-RPO regions as well. But now you're doing it confidently and you're doing it in a way that we're all on a common technology that we can see everything at once. Yeah. Wow. You just made a case for RPO that I'll bet you would not have predicted that you would have made five, 10 years ago. <laughs> That's why I made some friends at the RPO company that we uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll ended bet. up going with. So, uh, but no, it's, I mean, it's part of the journey, right? So it wasn't my expectation, but you have to be open to, to whatever um, is going to drive the best results. And RPOs are full of great recruiters that came from other companies that got frustrated working for one company or got frustrated with the expectation they had to be in an office and with the RPO right. they didn't have to be. You know, yeah. So there's some fantastic people and teams out there and we had a great mm-hmm. one supporting Whirlpool. Terrific. Okay. So speaking of TA technologies, what are your favorites? What what's what's working right now as far as your perspective? So so acknowledging that I'm a little out of the game um, mm-hmm. as far as spending the last year uh, not leading a TA team. Um, what I would say is I'm heavily, heavily, heavily dependent on Talent Tech Labs. So if anybody doesn't know or heavily leverage Talent Tech Labs, I don't have stock in it. I don't get anything for saying it. It's just an organization that exists purely to sort through the thousand companies that are sending all the TA leads emails or LinkedIn messages every week saying, oh, I have the new great thing that you have to have. And if you don't have it, there's no way you can be successful. First and foremost, I really go there first to understand like what space is this company in. In comparison with that, I try to look at what do we need as a company? So what are we trying to improve? And so I only pay attention to the ones that are something we need to improve and something the Town Tech Lab says is worth the time. And those are the ones I focus on. So it's a long answer to your question. Things that came through that scope included um, a company called Top Funnel, which is kind of on the front end with um, the AI matching and the candidate outreach. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one called Plum, which is really, it's automated behavioral assessment, but in a much simpler and more scalable way than Pymetrics, which is one where I had an initial uh, affinity and still have great respect for, but it's just harder to scale at speed. Yeah, um, And Seekout is one where I've had more exposure recently working with some of their teams, which I think provides some really unique capabilities that are needed, not only from a diversity inclusion perspective, enable you to be targeted in your search, but also really enable a potential shift away from a, a heavy reliance on LinkedIn recruiter licenses, which is yeah. something... I think is long overdue. So it's exciting from that perspective too. And maybe the one other one I would add, which is key technology from an early career perspective is Handshake. I mean, Handshake has been absolutely transformational in the US 
And I hope that we'll see the same outside the U.S. You know, as they expand. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would agree to that. And and thanks for the shout out for TA Tech Labs. I agree, and nobody pays me to say anything about them either. But their TA ecosystem infographic has done more, I think, to give perspective than anything. Right. So they're mm-hmm. grouping. TA technologies into the functionality and there's crossover, of course, but, you know, most TA technologies can be grouped into what their, their main focus is. And it's so helpful because it's a sort of a, it's a sea of TA technology and you, there's just no way to discern what should I use for what challenge Mm -hmm. unless you're able to do an apples to apples comparison. So I completely agree there. TA Tech Labs, a TA ecosystem for those listening. If you want to download this, it's just a PDF download. And I think you can do a bunch of research on there as well. But um, just that infographic has saved me a number of times. Countless hours. Yeah. yeah. You made reference to not leading a team for the last year, Tim. And um, I know you have been working on some pretty interesting non-TA stuff like writing a book. What? Contentment commitment, which I think has more to do with personal happiness and productivity than it does with, you know, hiring a hundred thousand people. So talk a little bit about that focus area that you've been allowing yourself for the last year. Uh, sure. It's, uh, it's been my experience. Um, people are much more interested to talk uh, about how to be happier or changes they're making or want to make in their life um, to improve it than recruiting. I don't know if you've ever brought any of your recruiting stories to a party, but it's not a winner. So, um, well, except so, if it, if they want to complain about a candidate experience that they've had, so that's or, or say, enough. oh, I know how recruiting works because I hired a person once. So, right, like, exactly. Um, so, so yeah, uh, it was never never uh, a thought to write a book on recruiting. I don't, you know, and even if I did, it would be irrelevant a few months later when it changes. Mm-hmm. Right? Stuff so, changes, yeah. Good point. Um, but this, on the other hand, it was much more personal. So really, first and foremost, I would say coming out of Whirlpool, my assumption was I would probably do one more cycle of being global head of TA at a large company. And in my mind, it was be a Fortune 50 or Fortune 100 company. And that would kind of be my last four or five year cycle before I retired. As I had time, you know, and we're all, you know, questioning everything coming out of the pandemic, but I had time. And I also had a good year with investments that sort of enabled different choices than I might have um, expected to have at that time. I just, I found myself as I was interviewing for roles, having a hard time faking excitement for them, if I'm being honest. So question to myself, well, what's a good use of my time? I do have a retirement plan. My wife and I want to start a foundation, but we haven't saved up enough money to do it yet. So Uh what's a good use of time between now and then? And this was something that I was pretty passionate about. So what it is, just to explain, when I was in my late 20s, kind of moving through the different career levels at Accenture, kind of being viewed as successful in the sense that um, I got a good job and I was progressing, I was being promoted, you know, as quickly as you can be promoted. And so I'd always kind of thought of that as success, but I was feeling pretty unhappy personally. So I built a framework because like I said, it's metrics and analytics and that's how my brain works. So I try to, to take some of the emotion out of it and just analytically think about what are all the different things I could do to change the situation. And then of all those things, how can I prioritize and focus on the ones that have the biggest impact? So I built a, a framework to do that and it worked really well for me. And then I shared it with my wife and it, it brought us a lot closer together and, and really helped our family a lot. And so I'd started sharing it just anecdotally with people in a similar situation that I worked with. 
Um, and I got really positive feedback on it. So I started sharing it more in work settings. So like at office meetings for Accenture or HR meetings for Accenture. So, so over 10 years or so, I probably shared it with 500 or so people in various work and, and non-work settings. Just like with a, a diet, it's not like it's magic and it works for everybody and everybody loves it, of course. So, you know, if you share it with 100 people, maybe 40 people are drawn to it and will try it. And of those, maybe 20 or 25 finish it. But everybody who does it, not surprisingly, has a great experience. And and for me, it's hugely gratifying when someone comes back, you know, six months later after you forgot, even shared it with them. And they say, wow, I finished this cycle and it had a huge impact and I'm so much happier and I'm using this and I shared it with, you know, this other person and so on. Wow. I, I, do, I wouldn't have expected it, but that makes me feel fantastic and it makes me feel much more useful to the world than spewing recruiting knowledge. So mm -hmm. I have that luxury because I don't, I don't, if I needed to pay the bills, I would reset my, my mind and, and, you know, delay some of this, but I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm able to focus on it now and it mm -hmm. feels great. And so the book is really building that framework out quite a bit more and bringing it to life with a lot of personal stories and hopefully kind of through my professional network, just getting it out to many more people than I would ever have been able to get it out to otherwise. Very cool. And uh, I I have, by the way, downloaded it uh, on my Kindle. So I'm a Kindle person. And so I've, so I've got it there. Haven't quite uh, jumped into it quite yet, but I noticed on your website, there are some job aids and downloadable PDFs that help with some of the kind of thinking through what your contentment commitment is going to be. Can you just say a couple of words about what, what are, what are the key components? What, what makes it different from a Covey principle approach or, you know, some, some other. So growing up in consulting, you know, you can take the person out of consulting, but maybe not the consulting out of the person. So there has to be a framework, right. And, and tools and processes. So, but no, so what it is, is looking at six dimensions of contentment and where that came from, which the book highlights is really lifting from a positive experience I had using tools that were already created, focused on happiness at work or engagement. And so in those tools, it was, it was kind of six dimensions of work. So it was, if I can remember, it was what kind of work do you do? Who are the people you work with? What are your opportunities for promotion? What are your rewards? What's your work-life balance? And what are the values of the company? And if you think about any performance review you've ever had with a direct report, you know, you probably had someone who said, well, I only want to work on cool work. I only want to work with people I respect. Um, I want more money. I think I should be promoted, but I also want to work 30 hours a week. And I'm exaggerating. But the point is, OK, great. But if you can only have one of those things, what's most important right now? And so what the two, what that tool did was force you to rank what's most important to you and also to rate your satisfaction in each one. And as a supervisor, it was hugely useful because it gave you a much deeper understanding of what was making that person happy and unhappy at work. And so the way that I used that over time was I evolved it. And I said, this is really useful for me to understand what you're happy with and unhappy with, but not so useful in terms of what we're going to do about it. And so what I added to that tool was to say, you know, let's you think of two or three things you can do that are fully in your control um, that would make it better. You know, not all six of them, but the one that's the thing we need to focus on the most. And I'll come up with one or two things that are fully in my control as your supervisor. Um, and let's commit to doing those. And we would do that. And inevitably, when you have the next performance review cycle, they're happier. And that one's, that one's been improved greatly. So, so I saw that type of success um, with that type of a framework. And so I, I evolved it and said, what if I thought of happiness in life or what I would call contentment or happiness in your personal life, whatever you want to call it. But I said, 
how many dimensions would that take? Um, and I, I came up with six dimensions for that. You could have more, you could have less. But if you look at it in terms of yourself, um, if you have a partner, if you have dependents, um, friends, family, and your community, um, within each of those, I came up with sub-dimensions for each one, so kind of different aspects. So if you break it down, it's basically 36 different things that could make you more happy or less happy. And it's a process to go through methodically and holistically and ask yourself, which ones of those do I care about? So I can't care about all 36 of them. So which ones do I care about the most? And then in relation to that, what am I happy with where I am and not happy with where I am? And not surprisingly, this is, I would say it's not rocket science. The ones that you care about the most that are in the worst place, shocker, that's where you need to focus on actions to, to make improvements. And so the book has some examples, but it's not meant to be preachy or say, you know, follow steps A, B, and C, and you'll be happy forever. Mm-hmm. It's just saying this is a, a methodology. So the first of those tools you reference is called the R3 worksheet. And what it is, R3 stands for reflect, rate, and rank. So the book is meant to probe with a lot of questions and a lot of examples to help you reflect on each of the dimensions and sub-dimensions within them. And then once you've done that and you're deep in it, you rate your satisfaction and you rank which of the sub-dimensions you care about the most within the dimensions. And so you go through that for each of them. And at the end, uh, another tool is a priority matrix, but it basically you know, helps guide if you can do 20 things to be happier, let's pick three or four. <laughs> so we make sure we do them. And then the last piece is, is the C3 form, I call it, but it's a contentment commitment contract. But basically it's take someone you trust, a friend, someone who's not going to make fun of you for doing this, but someone who's going to support you and encourage you along the way and sit down with them however you want to do that, whether it's over wine or a walk or you know wh- whatever setting works for your, your person. But explain to them what you're doing and why, and that these are the three things or four things you want to commit to, and you're signing it in front of them, and they're signing as your witness. And so you kind of commit to a timeline and specific actions, and you sign it, and it's a contract with yourself. And so that bit, I've, I've noticed more people finish it when they do that than people who do everything else but don't do that bit. Yeah, um, so accountability. Uh, yeah. So of course it depends who you do. You can find studies that say that makes it better and that makes it worse. Mm-hmm. But most of them will say if you pick a person who's supportive and understands what you're doing and why, it, it makes it better. Well, I love this and uh, can't wait to dive into it myself. And what I'm happy to hear is when I first saw the name of the concept, contentment commitment, which is a mouthful, but I, I get where it comes from. At first, the image that I had in my head was just be satisfied. Just be happy with what you've got. But that's not the point, is it? It's discovering what's going to make you content. So in my case, I am addicted to change. I love change. I love different things all the time. And I'm I'm happy to hear contentment in this case would be to just figure out how to continue that and you know make that commitment to myself or in whatever form it takes. It's not a sort of a, oh, just you know, stop being so frenetic and, you know, be content with what you have. It's more self-discovery. The reason I like the framework and I think the reason it resonates with different people in different situations is because it doesn't say, you know, do this one thing and you'll be happier. Mm -hmm. For some people, when they go through the exercise, what they see is important is that they've given all their time to other things and no time for themselves and doing things for themselves. For other people, they'll realize they've protected that but they've neglected friends or family and they want to reestablish connections with friends or family. And for others, you know, they're happy with all of those things, but they feel no connection to the community in which they live, or they feel like they're not giving anything back and there's some gap or something missing there. 
Yeah. So it doesn't really matter what your thing is. The point is to go through, and it may be that you already know what makes you happy, which is fantastic. Um, a lot of people don't. But even if you do, you know, for someone in that situation, this would be more, it wouldn't be about fixing something that's broken. It would be about what's my next thing. So if there's 10 more things I want to do and explore and try in my life, which one or two am I going to do next? Um, yeah. And helping you figure out why you should focus on those first, because, oh, those probably actually have the biggest impact on my happiness overall. Right. Wow. Yeah. So the the contentment, I understand your comment. And I would just say this to, to make it easy for anyone listening. I picked that word, not I did pick it because it's alliterative, the contentment commitment. Mm -hmm. yep. I have joked about that and made other examples of why that's hard to say and not a good choice. <laughs> that's what it's going to be now. Um, uh, you're committed to it. It's all good. <laughs> but um, I know the analogy I would make, kind of like SAT question, is to me, contentment is to happiness in your personal life as engagement is to happiness in your professional life. Yeah. Right. So that's that's the connection and, and nice. really the point and the thing the thing I think gives it the opportunity to expand beyond just writing a book and doing banner ads and hoping people download it. To me, I think the more we understand how happiness in your personal life impacts your happiness in your professional life and therefore mm -hmm. your performance in terms yeah. of your productivity, your engagement, your retention, I think the more employers experiment in that area and try to help their employees proactively be happy in both. That's where I think there's an opportunity for it to spread through companies. And that's where I think you could get a huge number of people that actually benefit from this. So that's really my goal is not to, to go around talking about it at conferences or you know doing workshops every week, but to just try to introduce it to enough companies and have some success that it spreads within the companies that then the companies talk to others and it kind of spreads on its own. That's really my goal for it. That's my aspiration over the next three to five years is to see how far we can take it and how many people we can help. And to me, the ultimate measure of success would be how many people fill out the form that are telling me their story that, Hey, I tried this thing. I didn't really yeah. think it was work. And here's what happened. Like that, that's, I saw that. I saw that. And that's, that, that's going to take a little boldness on the part of, you know, whoever is uh, may or may not know you and be willing to share. Uh, so I'll be interested to see that as well. How many of those that you get? That's it's just fantastic. So thank you, Tim, for that explanation, and also you know for being willing to put the work in to to make the framework come about. I mean, as you've said, it's been years and years in the making, and will be your legacy. I think. I hope so. It's been in my head a long time, and uh, I just needed some time to get it out. So I'm yeah. thankful, thankful that that I was able to get that, and and and. Uh, I'm going to focus on getting as, as much good out of it as we can. Outstanding. And there's one more interesting thing about you that listeners may or may not know, and that is that you are a musician. You and your brother have been making albums for a couple decades, right? The T Street Players? Uh, since 2010. Um, yep. Yeah. So, okay. And okay. So one decade, but still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nine lot, albums. So one a year. Wow. So Tim, where do you get this time? <laughs> is, um, is it just a matter of priorities? Like, you know, the, the, the framework indicates or I, you, I you're making music, you're putting frameworks together, you're leading big teams. There's no coincidence to me that, you know, it was maybe 15 years ago, I started using the contentment commitment framework for myself because I felt like I was gaining weight and I wasn't being as good a dad as I wanted to be. And I never went on dates with my wife anymore. And I didn't see any of my friends and like, all of the things, right? In all of the dimensions, I felt yeah. like I was underperforming and I wanted to be better in all of them. 
it's not like I have any more time than anyone else. And I have to say, it's a question I get a lot. But to me, I, I think it's one of the credentials, if you will, because I think people would say a thousand people have written a book on how to be happy. Who's this guy and why do we care his opinion? Yeah. My answer is you probably shouldn't. And I don't promise anything. But what I can tell you is just I frequently hear people say, where do you find the time for all the stuff? And I don't feel like it's a big burden or difficult. Like I, I spend my time on the things I said I was going to spend it on because I know that's what's going to bring me the most happiness. So may or may not be the answer you want, but from my perspective, it's super interesting. It's something that gave me a great excuse to get together with my brother. Um, it was something I could learn and use a part of my brain I hadn't really done before. I've always loved music, but I've never played any instruments. So working with the software, you know, some of the, the audio editing I did way back when at Accenture helped me uh, be comfortable with some of the music. I love it. I mean, it's um, I'm terrible. I can't build a chair or a bookshelf or you know, anything that most <laughs> people are capable of building. But this is something we can create that'll still be here when we're not, you know, so that that makes me feel good and proud as well. You know, and music is subjective. So I could think the song's fantastic and you could think it's terrible. It doesn't yeah. mean that it's good or bad. It's just yeah. our opinion. Yes. So, right. so once you get past trying to get, you know, get praise or get people to tell you they love it and you just mm -hmm. do it because you like it and it's fun, then then it's a good use of time. So we've been in yeah. that space <laughs> for a long time and we'll do it until it's no longer fun. I love it. Thank you for that encouragement. That's honestly how I feel about the podcast. You know, I, I, it may or may not get listened to, but I find it super interesting to interview people like you and learn what makes you tick and hopefully leave a legacy of content that future TA leaders can listen to and think, hey, I'm not the only one who's felt this way, or I'm not the only one who's had this challenge, or, you know, what are some technology I ought to be thinking about, or what's the framework for thinking about technologies, right, to, to solve TA problems. So when you do things for the right reasons or because you believe in them, then only good things happen. And I'm yeah. certain there'll be many, many, many recruiters around the world that are thankful you put together this many podcasts where they can just in 50 minutes learn from all the different people you've interviewed and take all the best pieces or most relevant pieces for the situation they're in and, and be better recruiters and better people as a result. So I'm yes. sure... Hopefully. I'm sure you know that, but I, I hope as well. Yeah. And now you are part of that, Tim. So um, I want to thank you for your time today. This has been enormously interesting. What a great experience set that you bring to the table and a great legacy. And I am assuming a great future as well. So it'll be interesting to watch. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it myself. So we'll see uh, what happens. All right. We'll see what happens indeed. All right. Thanks again. All right. Thank you, Ryan. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. This podcast is independently produced in collaboration with ERE.net, and we would love to hear your feedback. You can email Aaron directly at E-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N at people-results.com. You can also follow Aaron on Twitter at Aaron McPeterson, connect with her on LinkedIn, and learn more about her practice at people-results.com. 